Radio brings you The Haunted Sea with host Scott Martis. Hello, this is Scott Martis. Welcome to another episode of The Haunted Sea. Our guest today is Utah folklorist Danny B. Stewart, and we're going to be talking about the lake monsters and water cryptids of Utah primarily. Hello, Danny. Hey, how's it going? You want to uh, tell the people about your credentials and background? Sure, yeah. Um, so, I've basically been immersed in the cryptozoology, metaphysical uh, history my entire life. Uh, there really hasn't been a point in time where I wasn't immersed or steeped in this. Uh, I eventually uh, started... Uh, going to Utah Valley University, and I was very fortunate to find professors who supported my interest in uh, this type of area, so much so that I was able to build uh, independent study courses around cryptozoology with, say, like Dr. Uh, Dr. Stecker, uh, an archaeologist, uh, as well as Dr. Paul Riby and uh, Alex Caldiello, and these individuals helped me along to uh, kind of begin to build a better framework of study around phenomena uh, that most people wouldn't even consider uh, serious in any way whatsoever. So like, I was able to build like the, the history of, of cryptozoology, a 4,000 level class, as well as one on uh, griffins and unicorns. And Dr. Paul Ivey, who is my mentor still to this day, he's a paleontologist. He teaches biology and paleontology at Utah University. He uh, was actually a uh, student of Roy Mackle. And he, all, he himself almost went to the uh, Congo to look for Makuma Membe, and he's kicking himself for not doing it. And he and I actually, actually still continue to discuss potentially doing that and the ramifications uh, politically uh, for us and, and the safety of how we get in there and, and actually come back alive. We're not so much afraid of getting eaten by a dinosaur so much as we are getting shot in the head by, you know, gorillas or whatever may be there uh, at that time. And so uh, after I left UVU, uh, I got a degree where uh, I wrote my senior thesis in cryptozoology. I read it. My main degree was basically history and philosophy, but I was able to immerse those things together because uh, science really wasn't really my thing at the time. I mean, I'm a folklorist. And after I left UVU, uh, I was asked to give a lecture on cryptozoology, which I did, and it was at a full house, about 500 people came. And about three days later, I was asked to give a lecture on unicorns. Uh, a few months later, I did that to a, a massive showing of people where I talk about the mythology, the truth, and legends of unicorns, and show how they could actually be real using the scientific method. And I was actually, because of that lecture, I was giving a teaching position at UVU where I taught humanities to the arts. Primarily, I consider myself more an artist and a storyteller than anything. Like, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a cryptozoologist. Uh, but I collect stories. Uh, I, I've collected over 180 plus original pieces of folklore from around Utah. Stories involving weird creatures like Utah Lake Creature or ghost stories or lost love traditions. Any piece of folklore that I, uh, that I get my hands on, I will catalog and keep. So while I was teaching UVU, I, I became known as, you know, the cryptozoologist professor or the guy who believes in vampires and all this bullcrap bull that and people don't really understand what I'm actually trying to say. I get along and don't really listen to see that my methodology is a lot different than other individuals that kind of delve into this area. So 
after I left UVU, I began, I went to Oregon for a while, came back, and I have been able to build a, a very large reputation uh, involving my personal studies uh, of folklore, uh, as well as creating a ghost tour in downtown Provo called the Original Utah Ghost Tour, which is not a tour about fear. My tour isn't about fear, it's about education and understanding. It's more of a theosophical approach towards the metaphysical, and people enjoy it. And I write for Utah Stories magazine about uh, a lot of the things that I've found. Uh, all the stuff that I actually have published involving my research is probably less, including Utah Stories, including my ghost tour, and other areas I've published and spoken about, it's probably less than 10% of what I've found. I have a whole, like, 90% of original stories around Utah uh, of things that uh, involving the metaphysical, ghost stories, etc. And so, because of that, now uh, I have positioned myself as a quote-unquote, uh, if you can actually be called an expert on this topic, uh, expert of the metaphysical of Utah. And so that's where I kind of am today, and I, uh, Brigham Young University has actually uh, approached me last year, and they have created the Danny B. Stewart uh, collection, but they are copying all of my work and all my research. And they, they only have about six of my articles right now, but they're waiting for me to, to turn in the rest of my work, and I'm, I'm compiling it and making it more feasible and readable for the general public rather than just scattered notes. So that's one thing I'm quite proud of, is to have that uh, on my resume and you know be given immortality and recognition by a legitimate university, which kind of validates my, my lifelong work of collecting these stories. So uh, just one thing I want to be clear again, like I'm not a cryptozoologist, I'm a folklorist, and I'm a traditions bearer, and I collect stories. I may walk off like a duck and talk like a duck from time to time and take people out on excursions looking for weird things, but I don't like to class myself, classify myself as a cryptozoologist. But a lot of a lot of the data a lot of the data you gather would be considered cryptozoology though. Well, absolutely, absolutely. And like I, like I said, I, I, I delve in that area. I do a lot of work in that area. But uh, I, like you've read my senior, my senior thesis I wrote back uh, many years ago, in 2009. Like I, I can easily be called a cryptozoologist, but I just want to separate myself from that because my work, I feel, is so much more than just looking for animals we haven't yet to discover. Like, I, ideally... I guess not ideally, I would say. I've been labeled a ghost guy, which is, again, a, a poor term. They don't really understand that my work involves me collecting stories and retelling them in a, a somewhat humorous way. Uh, some people could say, well, when I was teaching you, you a lot of my work was kind of like one part professional lecture, one part performance piece slash stand-up comedy, which is why I was so popular during that time, because I, I took art, which is thought to be a really boring topic to most people, to lecture on it anyway, to be lectured to about art, and made it really interesting by involving uh, certain pieces of artwork, like the Cyrus of Babylon, for example, and talking about the folklore and the pop culture legends of Akil and being the connections to that as a bar relief, you know, or as a, as a sculpture, or as a, a mosaic, all of these things appeared in various forms, and looking at artwork and telling mythological and folklore and legend-based stories around art, while at the same time squeezing in cryptozoology or occult studies or ghost stories so that people would be on the edge of their seats and actually being entertained and learning at the same time. Yeah. yeah. And, and I learned that that was the best way for me to teach art. Unfortunately, I have become more labeled at the universities as more of a cryptozoologist. I guess it's not a bad thing, but to be taken seriously enough by people who poo-poo the idea. And I think that like one thing we have to do as cryptozoologists, if you are living in that area, to be taken more seriously, I think we have to change our vernacular. We have to stop using the word monster in almost all of our work. Like the Loch Ness Monster, that's not going to fly. Because when you throw that word in there, it pollutes the water, figuratively, yeah. and we can't really get anywhere with closed-minded individuals who 
won't even look at the area. But if you're like Champlain, won't even look at it because it has this dinosaur or, or, or monstrous connotation when there, there more likely are a number of things that have caused the folklore surrounding these things. Some of them may very well be something so amazing, so extravagant, so awesome, that it could legitimately, if we can capture one long enough to take a skin sample, because I'm going to catch and release. That's what I've been working on myself. To prove, to prove that something like this exists. I'm sure there's, there's got to be at least a small population of Lake Sabah that have something miraculous. That could fall in that category. Like a, a new apex predator that we have yet to discover. And it may not be a dinosaur. I don't, I don't think it's an Loch Ness. I think more likely we were to find something like that, it's going to be in one of the tropical areas like the Amazon or the Congo, Africa, something like that, more likely than have it in a, in a western area. But I just think that when we talk about the Loch Ness creature, which unfortunately too many people who don't fully understand folklore think it automatically means the fictitious or the fantastic, but look at mythology and think it's a, it's a synonym for uh, fiction. When, you know, yeah. the foundation of folklore and mythology and legend, they all mean separate things, but they cooperate, they work together, and we need a fourth level. You need that fourth level of science. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Then, there is, there is a, a need for the cooperation. And that's where, why I love my mentor, Dr. Bailey, so much. Because, I mean, he is a staunch science. I mean, he is hardcore science. But he's open-minded enough to look at these areas of study and say, okay, well, we have these stories of other so-called monsters, huge uh, quotation marks there, yeah. Like the mountain gorilla, that was thought to be a fictitious piece of bullcrap. Yeah. You know, the Vukon ox, the, the Akape, the Komodo dragon. Giant the, squid. The, the giant panda. Yeah. That thing was thought to be complete nonsense. And you know, the giant squid. You have to look at those examples, which some cryptozoologists do. I'll give them credit that. But not enough, I think, are doing this and bringing this to the table. And talking about, like, say, krakens as being gigantic, giant squids, or the discussion is polluted. And that's what I think you and I and other individuals who I think take this seriously enough to sell our soul to this devil, to actually, you know, devote our entire lives to this, we have to start, we have to rework our approach towards these topics. Yeah. And with me, I'm not being a scientist. I work with the scientists. I have scientists on my side, like who I go to for that certain area. Yeah. For me, I used art and storytelling to get my point across. Yeah. You get to see the stories and then say, okay, here are the stories. We have enough people out there saying these things. They're, they're seeing these things. They, and, and they just, and I think it was Grover Kratz, and this is a Bigfoot thing here, but he, he mentioned once that of all the thousands of Sasquatch footprints we've found over the, over the centuries, if just one of them is real, then we're on to something. And I think that goes, that's, that goes for the lake creature lure, too. And if, if the Loch Ness creature is a, a, some type of as-yet-unidentified giant salamander or a large eel or a, a, a whole new population of eels or something like that, that still doesn't, that doesn't diminish the folklore, and it doesn't diminish the importance of that area. Yeah. And I think we just need to, like, that's why I, I, I hold so much respect for Roy Mackle, not just uh, because he was uh, Dr. Bybee's mentor, but because of, you know, his, he was willing, and other people think this too, but he was willing to look at these other Areas and, and go beyond the plesiosaur, elasmosaur, yeah. theory yeah. to get people to listen. Yeah. That's the beauty of, of true cryptozoology. And really, if scientists, if biologists and zoologists were really were interested in this area, were really doing their job, we wouldn't even need cryptozoology. It would be, a, it would be yes. just straight zoology. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's what I want. That's my dream in a perfect world is we could just erase cryptozoology and go back to zoology and the zoologists would look at these stories and just say, okay, there's we, we, there, a lot of these things that we know exist today started with folklore. Well, yeah. Let's try to let's try to look at this, if not out of pure curiosity, to protect them. Yeah. Well, because these are so rare. Obviously, some of them are going to be so incredibly rare. I think the way you, that you distinguish between a monster and an unknown animal is that a monster. Uh, defies our understanding of animal physiology as well as physics. It yeah. doesn't fit in. So that's what makes it a monster. And Roy Mackle, not Roy Mackle, sorry, Hoovelmans, one thing I like he said was that, uh, he, he, I don't know if he created the term, but he used to do it, called the snare of mythification. Have you yeah. heard of that? Yes, yes. And like where an individual will see, or a group of people will see something, that is outside of their, their knowledge bubble. Yeah. And, and so they start to take bits and pieces of mythological or legendary things. Fill in the gap. And build, to put the, the puzzle pieces into this to try and create what they saw, to try and describe what they saw. Yeah. And sometimes they, they full-heartedly create what could be called a monster. But with the barely creature, I think, there are, the sightings are so few and far between. But like the stories of the belly creature from the 1800s where people were seeing uh, a large, fire-breathing alligator or crocodile-like things uh, with big red eyes, I think a lot of those stories kind of came to us from old Native American traditions uh, about the belly creature. And the same with the, the Utah Lake creature which uh, I think is, I honestly think that the Utah Lake creature in Utah County has more validity than the Bear Lake creature. From, uh, I stopped looking at Bear Lake years ago, uh, and it's, it's not because I don't respect it, it's just because it, that's, that's the, one of the questions, I get two questions all the time. Every time I do a lecture or presentation or speak to anyone, and I'm, I'm kind of annoyed by them, which I get it, they don't know the answer, but still I get annoyed by the question. They asked me about the bear creature, and they asked me about if Cain was Bigfoot. But coming back to the bear creature, like, really, there isn't a whole lot that we have to, in modern times, to really go back on. And we have to go farther back, back to the folklore, and even farther back to the mythology of the Native American traditions who talked about water dragons or water demons. I don't know what, what name or they used. Now, this would, have been, this would have been the Shoshones or the Paiute? Yeah. yeah. Shoshones. I, I believe, I, I'm not positive right now. I don't have the numbers with me. But, like, the thing is, like, another, another theory I really like, hypothesis, I mean, I'm sorry, another hypothesis I really like is the idea of prehistoric animals lingering into historical times. Before they became completely extinct. Yeah. Well, we, we know that happened. We know that happened with some of the Pleistocene megafauna. Because they were well, still true. around and with Paleo Indian. Black Unicorn is a perfect example of that. Where the, the Alaskan rhinoceros lingered and it became one of the uh, unicorn legends. I think. I, I, I'm, more, I'm just like you or anyone else would love to have, like, a Mosasaur in Bay Lake. But the likelihood is next to zero. I think. I hope I'm wrong. But there may have been something that lingered long enough yeah. for people to see and well, encounter. I was doing some... Um, yeah. I was doing some uh, research ahead of this on the history of Bear Lake, and it's very unusual. Apparently, the lake is 250,000 years old, based on yeah. four samples from the bottom of the lake. And all there's four species of fish in, in the lake that are found nowhere else that are endemic to Bear Lake. So that's impressive right there. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, the point is almost 200 feet deep. Yeah. So it's, it has its own... 
Yeah. It has its own unique geology and 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 ecology, which may point toward there being something weird there that we don't know about. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, that Utah Lake gets, I think, Bear Lake, I mean, gets a lot of attention where there are other lakes throughout Utah that have interesting stories also uh, involving these creatures. Like, like I, I previously mentioned Utah Lake. I, I, one of my close friends, James Chase, he's a, he is a uh, transplant from Hawaii. I used to work with him, and he said in 2000, Sometime around 2000, during the summer of 2000, he was on the north, the north uh, west side of Utah Lake, where he says it is one of the larger pool areas, where he said that he saw something about the width of, of like a beer barrel drum that was uh, silver in color with these kind of gold stripes. I don't believe he said he saw a fin or anything, but he said that he it, it submerged like a railroad and just quickly uh, emerged and then submerged like a railroad just yeah. within like a couple seconds. Mm -hmm. And he never seen anything like that before in Hawaii or in Utah alone. He wasn't really sure what the hell he saw. It, he, it was daylight when he saw this thing. And he knows for certain, he tells me that it wasn't just if it was a carp, which Utah is known for having, or a giant catfish, it was a real big one. Yeah. How big do these Lahat and cutthroat trout get? The big trout. Uh, the, the trout that we talked about in, uh, did I say that link on? Yeah, yeah. Uh, they like three or four feet, I think. Well, that's three pretty feet was like one thing I read about once. In the article, I think it was like two and a half feet. Yeah, that's pretty I mean, big. Just, just because it's prehistoric doesn't mean it's big. Yeah. And, and it's just, I think these, there are a lot of examples of prehistoric things, like Methuselah attacks, or Lazarus attacks, that's what it's called, where yeah. something we think is, is, is extinct, and then it reappears later on. But I think that the unfortunate thing is that these species, these specimens that we're finding in this examples, aren't impressive enough to really make you know, the front headlines. I mean, they're impressive to people like you and me. They give us hope. They yeah. give Dr. Bybee hope. But we need to find something that is so completely unknown to, to, to really make, to make the headlines and to give legitimacy to our work. Yeah. And like, what if we, like, we could have at least gotten a photograph of that silver thing with the gold stripes in Utah Lake. Yeah, well... Mm -hmm. Utah Lake is a, it's a very strange lake. I mean, delving into just the paranormal aspect of it, yeah. Uh, the ghost stories of Utah Lake are surrounded with water babies, which mm -hmm. Utah Lake has uh, stories about lingering inside the the, the shallows. I mean, it's a, it can be a very shallow lake. Like I walked across it when I was ten during a drought. When I was reading about it to do uh, research for for this interview. I came across an account of the discovery of a skull with a horn on it in 1870. God knows where that yeah. skull is now or what it really was, but I found that interesting. Do you know much about that? I, I've come to terms with what I read it being a hoax. Because one of the stories involving, like with the Bear creature, is Charles Wick and Joseph Rich, who is, is it a Wick or Rich? I don't know for certain. Uh, when they, we're helping to found the Bennett River area. It, it's generally, generally believed that they took the American legends about the Bennett creature to help found the area to create kind of an interest in it. So I think that there, was, there are way too many hoaxes, way too many people who want to, like the, there's that one jerk who, you know, over the last few years has took like a, a, a Sasquatch costume and, and covered it in like pig's blood and said he found something. Rick Dyer. That, that kind of bull crap, which I don't, like, I, I hear stories about skulls all the time. Uh, like I, I have a, a recent uh, story from someone who tells me that there's a, a Sasquatch skull uh, up on Tipanogos, just waiting to be found, sitting on the edge. And I've heard that three times. 
uh, over the over like 25 years. So yeah. people who uh, say it's up there, it's just hard to get to. Well, when people say they find a giant skull uh, on Utah Lake or in Bear Lake or somewhere, especially these more modern examples of these skulls, which 99.9% of the time are just creative taxidermy, and people do that for a living, it's just right, we need to have that in our hand. And I think if we talk about these stories too much, I mean, we talk about them as folklore, we talk about the finding of these skulls, we have to bring out, to give ourselves legitimacy, we have to call out the hoaxes. Yeah, exactly. Even and some of the champ reports from the 1800s are newspaper hoaxes. And you can usually tell because of the the oddball, unbelievable features they they add to the creature is usually the red flag that tells you, oh, this this can't be real. Yeah, and that's exactly why I take Utah Lake more seriously than Bay because the sightings by Utah Lake are long serpents, uh, primarily, uh, or like weird shapes in the water. Where with Bay Lake, you have these stories of giant dragons, big, gigantic, fire-breathing, crocodilian-like things, you know? Well, I was, I was going to point out to you, I saw a recent video about the Bear Lake monster, and I talked to a guy that had a sighting allegedly two years ago. So yeah. people are still seeing things at Bear Lake. Now, whether that is people want to see something because of the stories that were planted, or whether something is really going on, and, and maybe, maybe what... John C. Rich did was make up stories on top of a real tradition. I don't know. I oh, haven't well, been there, so. Well, that's why that's why I believe the Native American tradition. Like I, I believe the Native American traditions. I think that the farther back we go, the traditions are more than likely grounded in truth of some form or another than the, the more recent. Uh, whether and that we, these things could be, you know, they could be gods to them. They could be. Uh, metaphorical in new terms, like whether or not like certain things, like you know, Monday. I mean, my, one of my mentors, Alex Decker, he told me that he believed that a lot of the Mikula Mende in, in, in Africa, those stories that they were gods, revered gods, and so they could either be physical beings that were given uh, a deityhood or uh, a metaphysical being that was just worshipped, and the Western mind uh, kind of uh, misunderstood the, the stories and then like as, as the closer the more modern stories get the, the, the indigenous people see they can make a buck off of uh, westerners going in to try and find this or easterners going to try and find this yeah and they would just pull that along like the that was my all time favorite cryptid like I want to pet that thing well uh, you heard you heard the interview I did with William Gibbons right recently mm -hmm. Okay, well, um, you know, the interesting thing about Mokili Mbembe, a lot of people want to reject the sauropod hypothesis, but the interesting thing about the sauropod hypothesis is the footprints that have been found over there and associated with Mokili Mbembe look exactly like fossilized sauropod dinosaur footprints. And a modern, yes, and a modern lizard would not have footprints like that. I haven't seen, I haven't seen any of those so-called sauropod footprints, because the footprints I've seen are more aligned to a hadrosaur or a rhinoceros. Because like, Dr. Bagley and I, we did a lecture on uh, surviving dinosaurs in Africa. Like, I'll email you the slideshow we did. Yeah. I'm going to look at that. Well, you can, um, you can see the Mokele Mbembe footprints and the fossilized sauropod, sauropod footprints on the slideshow for the interview that I did with Gibbons. If you'll go back and okay. watch it and look at the slideshow, you'll see we also compare them with hippo footprints, and the hippo's got four toes as opposed to three on the okay. footprint. But aren't the cell footprints, they curve? Yeah, they're round, they're round like an elephant's footprint, but they got toes on them. Yeah, they look like a big round, pan-shaped footprint, like an elephant, but the toes are usually showing three. And it's the same mm -hmm. in the Mokili Mbembe footprints and the fossilized footprints. So footprints. 
Yes. So, so that really is, aside from the eyewitness accounts, that's your best evidence that it could be a sawpod, like those footprints. Well, I, I would love it to be one. I, I personally think that Kulmembe is a type of as yet undis- undiscovered form of lizard, like like the uh, Komodo dragon or the Megalania. Because when people, like the stories that are coming out of there, they're describing something with four legs, long tail, long neck. You could easily mistake, and semi-aquatic, I think that you could easily mistake the description for a type of uh, sauropod dinosaur or something, a a type of unknown mod or lizard. Which, again, I, I would love it to be a dinosaur. Yeah. But we also have to consider, like, the the atmosphere, and how these things would have to evolve over time. They'd get smaller, which makes sense with the stories about Mkilmembe, because they're not too big. They're about the size of elephants. But, again, I don't know. Until I'm there, until uh, we get there and go for a walk and, you know, well, maybe, out of the water. maybe I should hook you up with William Gibbons. He wants to go back over there again. So it might be a be great cool. idea to hook you two up, you know? That'd be cool. I mean, I'd be down at we're just trying to find the funding to do it. Yeah. Well, one of my ideas to do was to try and uh, piggyback on a medical expedition. Yeah. You know, with like the Seven Day Adventists, because they do stuff like that all the time, don't they? Well, I think there's a lot of Christian missionaries over there that are also involved in, you know, trying to, to do medical work to help the natives over there, so there probably is. So that, that's Dr. Brown and I were discussing the best way that we could figure that we could afford it would be to piggyback on a medical expedition with just a couple people and it'd be, I mean, it'd be fun to do but you also have to plan on not coming back but what could what happened to uh, what happened to Scott I the day Congo looking for a dinosaur oh come on what better way to die yeah think about it absolutely so, um, but you know, back to Utah for a minute. Yeah. We have uh, Mud Lake has had sightings of strange things. Severe Lake, uh, the Great Salt Lake has a lot of really fun, really stretched stories. Yeah. That's there. Extremely out, out there stories. And then there's Pyramid Lake, which had like a, a beaver sighting. Powell Lake, I think you mean. Pyramid Lake, I think you mean Powell Lake, the reservoir. Not pyramid-like. Lake Powell also. Lake Powell also had those stories, too. Ah, so there's a pyramid-like in Utah. Yeah, it's up in the Uintas. Oh, okay. And See, there's one, heard rumors there's one in Nevada, too, that has monster sightings. Which one? There's a pyramid-like in Nevada that has um, monster sightings, too. Yeah, pyramid-like Utah. Yeah, it's a very small little thing. And Utah's you win as mountains. But, you know, I don't know. The smaller the lake, the less likely I am to believe anything. Well, it's got to, it's, it's got to have enough to support enough of a food population to support a breeding colony of these animals. Plus, you're coming in and out a lot. We're losing you a lot. You, am I going in and out? No, no. Because um, I, I keep losing you for like seconds at a time. Well, in between your, your speaking. Well, what I was saying is that, that these lakes with reports have to have enough of a food supply to support a breeding population of something if it's isolated, if it can't get it out oh, through river systems. If you want, but you know, going on the defense of that though. These things, it, it could be an animal that just was like within, swimming in the, in, the, in the water at the time. That usually wouldn't, it could have been a deer. Yeah. You know, yep. Something saw. Or it could have been something like, you know, Australia's bunyip. You know, you never know. Well, a lot of people don't understand how wave dynamics work. And sometimes you can see a big wave and it looked like an animal. Because the water's dark, because of the way the sunlight's hitting the wave crest, it can look like a different thing than the water around it. 
In other words, it can look like a black hump of something moving through the water when it's really just water and the way the sun's hitting it. When I was little, I thought you tell you in hopes of seeing the creature, and you know, I'd see waves or ripples, undulating waves, and I'd for split second, oh, is that the creature? Oh, no, it's just water, it's just water. But some people are so, are so willing to, to just grasp onto anything and want that to be something. I, I, I just, I, I, I simultaneously loathe and love all the photos you post of, uh, of people who say that they've seen, they've taken a, a picture of a creature, but it's, it's so obviously water. Yeah, waves. exactly. You have to be complete imbecile not to see that. Yeah. Uh, and one guy, I forget who, posted something on uh, Zombie Please Sir that was very clearly sealed. Yeah. And that just continues to make fools of us. An another red herring is floating wood debris. Oh, yeah. Floating rocks. Have you ever met uh, Bradford? Yeah, actually, I, I met him in person. I flew out to Albuquerque to be in a documentary with him last year. So I like him. Yeah, I do too. He's a friend of mine. Yeah. Uh, I, I met him once at a symposium in Idaho, but like I, I was, I really respect his approach and I respect the way that he does things because I don't, he, he's not, I don't take him to be, you know, <coughs> poking fun at anything. I think he just, his, his book on white creatures and that, it's just, it's great. I, I, yeah, I have it. I have it. I'd love to, I'd love to have a sit down with him someday and just talk, uh, hash it out. Uh, about his philosophies and mine. I think I think we'd get along quite well. But I really respect him. I just bought a book he wrote about uh, clown folklore. Yep, I know. I know the book you're talking about. And there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a phantom clown story on my ghost tour, which is the only scary part of my tour. It's one of those popular things. And it's funny, Provo has like a, a, a history of having people dress up like clowns just to freak people out after 1 a.m. Yeah, just stand around parks. And you know, there are, there are people in the cryptozoology community who get defensive around skeptics. The cryptozoologists need to be asking these questions themselves. Of course. I try to do that myself, you know? And that's, and that's kind of like, and this might seem insulting to some cryptozoologists, but that's kind of why I like to separate myself from cryptozoology because there are too many people out there that don't ask these questions. Where with folklorists, like with being a folklorist, like we're asking questions and looking at both sides at, we're looking at the bullshit, we're looking at the story, and we're looking at the possibility when, we, when I collect these stories. That's the way it should be. And so, I mean, and it doesn't matter if, some, like some of the stories I've collected, uh, they would be obviously the whole crap. But it doesn't make it any less folklore. And it's a story that still affects people and gets told and retold over and over again. And it becomes real in the minds of some people. As long as we don't take the quote-unquote realness of it and turn it into a reality and start defending it as being an actual thing. Because the stories can be told. The vernacular is there. The stories are there, and they, they, they feed the imagination, they feed our culture, but there's a very strong difference between, you know, a story that you tell to scare small children to, to keep them from getting hurt, and a story that you tell that involves something that's been seen hundreds of times. You know what I mean? Yes, yes. Um, that's, that's what, I like to make that, that separation. And I bet the term for that is PICT, P-I-C-T. Uh, these stories that were told to small children. My grandma, when I was very, very young, my grandmother, there was this canal in front of her house. It was about like uh, five feet wide, and it was an open canal for the most part, but that, but that went underneath the street and then opened up again right in front of her house and then went underneath the back underground again. So there was like this... Uh, 25-foot stretch by 6-foot wide stretch of canal 
that had these cement wells. He, it was about uh, eight feet down. No, no, eight feet. Maybe like six feet down. You'd jump, hop down. And it wasn't always deep. They used it for irrigation. But it would enter into this huge, this huge pipe that would go underground. Well, my grandma, uh, she babysit me a lot. Grandma Grace Spalding. She would tell me there was this gigantic aquatic boar that lived in that canal pipe. And if I got too close to the water, they would jump out and get me. And she told me the story in hopes to have scared me. Yeah. So I wouldn't go down there and drown, which, <laughs> unfortunately for her, it did the exact opposite. You had to see and the boar. Sneak down there as many times as I could when I was looking like, uh, to try and find this aquatic boar. Like, I envisioned this gigantic green-scaled pig covered in moss that was, like, lurking in the water. And I'd jump down there, and I'd actually look inside the huge pipe to try and see it. I never saw anything. I'm starting to think my grandma was full of crap. But uh, like that, that story right there is a story that we could separate from, you know, we need to separate from things like the Loch Ness Creature or Bear Lake or Lake Champlain and put that in the strict folklore tradition, strict storytelling area. Where if you told that story to a uh, like a room of you know closed-minded individuals, they wouldn't be able to separate those two. Like the 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 pick the, the quantum bear story was obviously a fictitious story meant to scare me and to protect me. Where these other lake stories, these other lake creature stories, are things that are told and retold and seen all the time. And so that means there's something in there causing this story. Sure, there's a considerable percentage of it that could be complete lies, complete bullcrap, but stories that aren't there, that aren't bullcrap, are the ones we need to look at and to consider as anecdotal evidence of something going on there. Yeah. Whether it be a misidentified animal, uh, a deer, an otter, a seal, or a piece of wood, or an, a, a large salamander, or a large eel, or even with the sledge, a plesiosaur, or yeah. some type of unknown animal. Yeah. But there's too many lakes throughout the world and too many bodies of water that have these stories, which uh, I'm willing to bet most of them don't have something in them, but there has to be something causing these stories in a small percentage of them. And it doesn't matter if it's only, to me it doesn't matter if only like a handful of them uh, would be legitimate. To me, uh, I, I think the stories are important. Yeah. And that's what I do, I collect the stories. Totally worth further investigation. And especially when you tell them in a way that brings joy and happiness to people. Yeah. And entertains them. Well, um, how much of an influence in the paranormal stories from Utah does Mormon culture have an influence on? Huge. Huge. In well, fact, Mormons are my best customers. Uh, they are very open to the idea of the communication, of there being a very thin veil uh, between the other side and our side. And a lot of Mormon lore involves uh, being visited by deceased loved ones. My grandfather, Edmund Spaulding, he believed that his deceased brother visited him in his basement in the form of a, of a gigantic blue-glowing orb. And it came down into the, the bedroom, and it spoke to him. And he only told me this a couple times. Like, I was very young when I was around them. But, like, he, but my grandma... Well, and she would tell the story numerous times to me, which I guess he told her. And that that's not that's not unknown to find stories within uh, Mormon tradition involving deceased loved ones come in, and there's other traditions also, but specifically in Mormonism, and, and that they are visited by their deceased loved ones. Uh, and so, with that being the case, a lot of them. Not all of them, but most of them, I'd say, 
are very open to the idea of being visited by metaphysical. Now, when it comes to lit creatures, that's a little bit more of a stretch for some of them. But I have met enough of them, and I have been able to talk, like on my ghost tour, like I, I talk about lit creatures for a very short moment, and, and I think if you explain to them a, th- a certain type of methodology separating the metaphysical from the physical, then they're willing to listen. But ultimately, I, I, it's funny that, and this is from my experience with them, that they are very, very open to the idea of being visited by uh, a spirit or even dark spirits. And they are open to the idea of strange things and lakes, but more so about the metaphysical. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, I, I've, it's, it's really interesting to, there's, 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 obviously there's, there's, a, there's a, a, a hunger for this type of storytelling and phenomena. People are interested. That's why these television shows exist. People want to be entertained by it and learn more about it. But within Utah, like when I'm speaking to a group of people about the metaphysical, there is a different type of faith. Uh, a different type of expression of interest when I'm talking to the Mormons about phenomena. Because before all, I don't make it terrifying, I don't make it scary, because that's my goal when it comes to the, the supernatural realm, is to try and prove that, for the most part, religion has vilified the metaphysical, and that uh, these things are to be feared if they are, in fact, real. And that kind of validates... The, the stories that these individuals have told and retold about their, my grandma or my grandpa saw this, their deceased brother or mother come to visit them. Or, you know, small little children will say that this old woman came into their bedroom uh, and, and them, you know. It's, it's, it's unfortunate that, that that level of folklore mythology seems to be dying, though, in the modern times within Mormonism. Uh, the idea of this. It's not as prevalent as it used to be. Have you come across have you come across any examples of where maybe pioneer Mormon beliefs got mixed up with Native American beliefs? Regionally mixed? I mean, I've heard it at the time that mostly it involves uh, lay creatures. Mm. Really. I mean, it's just kind of, and it's kind of just kind of dovetailing in and out of that that arena by obviously like, using your detective skills to say, okay, well, it's obvious that this was taken from older tradition, older traditions, and kind of transmogrified, which is a lot of what religion does. I mean, it, it takes older stories and kind of uh, repaints them into something that kind of fits their their current methodology and, and uh, their worldview. Yeah, yeah. And the, the same goes with. Uh, with certain monster legends, like with fairy folk. The, the fairy folk stories are almost identical, but always different, because the names are different, and a lot of times people, they'll vilify them in certain areas of the world, like the, the Christian traditions have vilified fairy folk, but going farther back, like these are the old gods. These are the gods of the woods, you know, who helped things grow, who they were stewards of the forest. Pagan beliefs. Uh, it, it, it didn't. It didn't mesh well with the control structure that was needed uh, to maintain certain elements. Uh, they were, I believe, vilified and turned into today's modern-day demons. That's why uh, I don't believe in demons. I think that's complete. I, if there's one thing I'll say, I don't believe in demons. I think that that's complete bullshit. I think it's vilified demons, vilified old lore gods that have been. Uh, transmogrified and, and vilified over the centuries. Like the Greek god Pan turning into the horned modern devil. Exactly. Or how Baphomet is is this uh, poster boy for evil and you know, he's actually the uh it is actually the uh, the embodiment of education, you know, the the deity of education and learning. And it's all these things that just people will they don't do any digging, no one learns them. And that's that's kind of what I've kind of devoted my life to. Is taking these these misunderstandings, like with ghost lore, 
or cryptozoology, I'm trying to erase the misunderstanding of it through storytelling. Yeah. And getting people to understand that it's not just a simple black and white story that's that's inside of a box. There are various different elements that go into this and tell us, you know, about ourselves as as a culture, um, the way that we accept or vilify. Uh, these old native traditions or old lore traditions, whether it be Icelandic or Irish or Scottish or African or, or Australian. It's really interesting to me, and this is something that I, I would uh, use when I was teaching prehistoric artwork. It's, and I'm not the first person to say this by any means, but it's interesting that we have the same images appearing on you know, 50,000 year old rock art in Australia that pop up in southern Utah, that pop up in Africa, that pop up in France, you know. Why is that? What is the connection there? Why are there so many different images of anthropomorphic animal hybrids in old cave art? that mirror one another. Could it be that everyone had the same type of imaginary ideas at the same time? Perhaps. But there's got to be, there might be some other way to explain this. Like, were people actually encountering old gods? Were their grandfathers telling Were they just ghosts? Or were they just pips? Like, my grandmother used to tell me about the acquired door. We don't know. But it's funny that they, they're so alike. And with having, it, it, it could be genetic memory, genetic memory uh, of our ancestors encountering these creatures, and the fear still lingers there. Well, I'm sure you're familiar with the work of Adrian Mayer, too, about how ancient cultures would discover the remains, fossilized remains of extinct animals. The protoceratops and the griffin. Exactly. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Of course. I love her. I think she's absolutely... Absolutely. I, I'm friends with her on Facebook, so I know her a little. I, I, I'm friends with her, too, but I, like, I, I eat her books up, and that's... And it's, like, it's funny, like, when I, when I do a lecture about that, I said, you know, you know, you, you know that the, the griffin was real. You know, it's real. It's, it was a living, breathing creature. They look at me all silly, like, oh, this guy's crazy. And that, that's part of my teaching method, teaching method, is to make them think I'm nuts. And then give them the big reveals to like, oh my gosh, this guy's right. But to say that like, you explain the story of the protoceratops and the fossils and the ancient paleontological post process and then the myth built on top of that that gives us the griffin, it makes perfect sense. Of course the griffin was real, it was just in a different way than we realize. And like, every single, every single piece of folklore, of myth, and legend has, at the very least, a kernel of truth where it started. And some of these kernels become the size of molehills, or it can become the size of hills, or mountains of truth eventually, because you can actually prove that there is some validity behind this. Although it's using Googleman, the, the snare of mystification that kind of turns it into more fantastical, more pop culturist than it, it really could be. Yeah. And that's, like, the horror films, like, you and I, we're both horror film nuts. Oh, absolutely. And, but, I, I'm not blind not to, blind not to see that how horror does a great disservice to our field, too. Yeah. Uh, especially with the, the, the paranormal and ghost lore. Well, my, my goal is to make people not be so afraid of this and not to vilify it and look at the history. Well, on one end, they're, they're constantly beaten with this pop culture element of murder and fear and evil constantly coming at them, constantly, 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 where, and they're not going to have the time or perhaps even the interest to look into the foundations of what these things are. When someone sees a ghost, they're automatically going to be afraid of it. Um, and... Like, I think that's where you and I are, but we're fighting, we're fighting a battle from all of these different directions. Yep, We're yep. fighting the closed-mindedness, we're fighting the pop culture, 
were fighting the Snamification and Mistaken Identity. Yep. And were fighting the, uh, uh, a scientific, uh, were fighting a scientific element that should be working with us. And once I sit, once I'm able to sit down with a, I've been talking numerous times. I've never had to do this with Dr. Biden. Dr. Biden's been on my side all along the way. But I sat down with scientists before and who think that I'm just some Bigfoot chasing nut. And I said, no, just listen to me a second. And once they realize the approach I'm making, they're more open to have a discussion. And that's what we need to have. And like, uh, I'm actually in the process, there's this venue. Once, the, once this apocalypse is over, if it ever gets over, uh, I'm starting a, uh, and actually I'd actually have you on it too, because we can have people uh, uh, from uh, distance communicate. I mean, panel discussions at this venue in downtown Provo, uh, where I'm going to have experts in that specific area. It's the third space, third space downtown Provo. Uh, talk about certain elements of folklore, mythology, and groups as well. So I'm at Dr. Bybee, have me have a couple of the paleontologists, you know, have you, other people uh, join in mm-hmm. and have a panel discussion where all of our minds can come together and just talk about this in a way that pop culture and television, H aliens, unsolved mysteries, you know, those shows don't do. Yeah, well, there, there's a lot of really bad paranormal TV on right now. Oh, I don't even watch that it. Are going, watch that are just, it. just going for the most uh, distorted, sensationalistic I TV shows. I, I oh, absolutely. I've been, TV shows all the time. I've been turning a lot of them I, down. I, I can't tell you what it's <clears> on. I mean, but still, I, I joke about that. But, like, <laughs> ideally, I'd love to see a show which was kind of one part that Mr. Rogers meets Unsolved Mysteries, where we have an individual, fairly me, talking about this, talking about stories, and then having experts come on, like scientists who are out of our area who can cooperate in the discussion. Not like the guys who what if it's this. Yeah, the what if is great. We've had enough what if. Let's combine the what if with what could be? Let's look at the ecology. Let's look at the animals that are there. Let's look at the possibility. Let's look at the atmosphere. Yeah. See what likely could exist. Could dinosaurs still be alive? What it came down to with Dr. Byron is he says no. He says no because of the environment. But uh, with the atmosphere and environment, basically. But that's not saying that there isn't a possibility that something could have evolved to survive that area. Yeah. And like that's where that's what gives me hope about McKinley Mende. But bear in mind with McKinley Mende is just one name for numerous types of beings in that area. Yeah. Yeah. Africa. Yeah. The whole has stories of <coughs> excuse me, Ceratopian creatures, Solopaki creatures, uh theropods, uh weird serpent creatures with horns. All of them have a different name, but kind of in some ways almost have the same type of footwork that kind of pushes them along, but it gets, but the most popular one is McCone Mende. It's the poster boy, it's the poster child of Congo, living Congo dinosaurs. Yeah. Which I think it, I think it would be important for us to say, okay, we've done enough work with Lake Teeley and McCone Mende. Let's dovetail out of this and look at these other legends and see if there's a connection. If one of these legends isn't the, the founding, the founding legend. And that they just it just became straight folklore. Yeah. Or like areas. That's that's how we're going to find what's going on is looking at all the possibilities, all the rocks in, in Scotland that have a creature. Loch Ness gets all the attention. Yeah, Loch Marar has a, a strong tradition too. Yeah. Um. um why don't you tell the uh, audience about the uh, flying manta ray story? Oh, all right. Well, this is my baby. And uh, I'm quite proud of it. Uh, let me get my notes here. So this is uh, on my ghost tour. And so in March 2008, I was approached by this woman. 
who uh, she wanted to have a sit down, tell me that, that she saw, and uh, she told me that she saw at about 10 o'clock at night a gigantic flying manta ray that was about uh, uh, 200 feet in the air flying from the uh, southeast towards the northwest over the pro over what was, is now the Provo City Temple. Uh, back then it was the, uh, the tabernacle. It had a 17-foot wingspan and it was about 20 feet long, tip to tip. It was about 10 p.m. When I collect the story, I was like, whatever. All right. Well, I didn't believe it for a second at the time, uh, but I thought it was interesting enough to keep. So I documented it and sat on it for a while. Well, years later, uh, in the fall of 2013, a second woman uh, came to me saying that she had saw the exact same thing, flying in the exact same trajectory, flying over the Felicity Temple, and the exact same size. And I was like, what? Okay, something might be going on here. Took it, gave a little more validity to me, documented it, sat on And then it was further validated in 2018. And this is on my ghost tour. So I was uh, talking about the, the manta ray on the ghost tour, and my, my girlfriend, Tara Taylor, she uh, is all, she's my assistant on the ghost tour, and there was this gentleman who was on the ghost tour who started to like act like really like kind of emotionally distressed, like, what, what is he talking about? What the hell? And Tara approached him, and I didn't talk to him. Like, he wouldn't talk to me about I tried to approach him to get to me to talk to me about it more. But he told her that he saw this thing uh, on top of the Provo, the Provo City Hospital. There used to be these two towers. They, they demolished them last year, and they built a new tower. But he saw it climbing on the side of the building, like a bat would climb on the side of a barn door, climbing up. Same size, same color. It looked like, it looked like a big giant manta ray or giant bat with wings. And it climbed to the top of the building and then flew off towards the uh, towards the uh, the northwest, and I was like, "Holy crap! Really? That's really cool." So, the validity started making me take this more seriously. But then I was then thinking, "Like, is this really a gigantic flying mantra? There's got to be something that's going on here." But it was it's still a wonderful story. Well. Um, just this last year, 2019, August, I was uh, getting ready to go have sinus surgery uh, at the same hospital, and I was uh, with my intermittent uh, throat surgeon talking to him, and, and this is during our first meeting, and he tells me, so what do you do for a living? And then I, I told him a little bit, that's really interesting, well, what's your, what's your weirdest story? Tell me your weirdest story. So I told him about the man away. And he's like, whoa, that's really interesting. I like that a lot. And he says, that's really funny, too, because apparently for years, people going in the hospital and most of the at night had been seeing huge flocks of bats flying over the hospital and stopping at the very tower that the, uh, that one gentleman said he saw it climbing on the side of. And when they were demolishing that building, the construction workers apparently found a huge colony of, like, possibly, uh, maybe, might have been this much, but I'm, I'm told a thousand bats that were living at the top of this building, in, in the in the rafters at the top of this building. And people had been seeing these big flocks of bats flying to and fro in this building, and then leaving the building, flying the same trajectory as a giant flying manta ray. So I'm like, there it is. And again, this is, I use this as the best, perfect, most beautiful defense of cryptozoology, too, because people were seeing something. And so all this time, people who thought they were seeing a gigantic flying manta ray had actually been seeing these huge flocks of bats, which apparently, occasionally, uh, the shape, took the shape of what could be mistaken for a big manta ray, flying in that same trajectory, 
stopping at the hospital because that's where they live, and then leaving in the same trajectory, uh, apparently, as the man ray would fly. And I, I just think that's just one of the most beautiful things I, I found because it simultaneously shows what real crypto's worldview is and can be, taking stories that seem like they could be complete bullshit from the beginning, and then we find that actually something was causing this. That doesn't make the folklore any less beautiful, any less miraculous, but it does make for a great story and shows us that, yes, okay, people are saying things, whether they are something easily describable or something magnificent, we have to look at it and find out the truth before we just poo-poo. Even if there's not an ex- all this stuff. Even um, if there's not, yeah, even if there's not an exotic animal behind the stories, there's something going on worthy of investigation. Absolutely, yeah. That's uh, that's where I'm at. I think that's just the best example of it. Yeah. Uh, thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. Fantastic conversation. Well, have a good night. Thank you later. Yep. Bye. Radio brings you The Haunted Sea with host Scott Martis.